Hello and welcome to That HR Podcast from People Management. My name is Emily Burt, my co-host is Lauren Brown, and we're here to explore all you need to know in HR this month, including, as Donald Trump live tweets his presidency, our expert panel asks, what are the rules for having a good relationship with social media at work? We meet an HR director who is taking the profession to new heights, and Tim Pointer is back from his summer holidays to answer your latest reader queries. So since Donald Trump came to power, I'm not sure we've ever enjoyed such a public blurring of the lines between professional and personal use of social media. But it's long been acknowledged that communicating in this way has its benefits, but it can also cause us serious problems at work. And by some measures, this is becoming more intense as we start to use more platforms. Well, joining me today are two experts who specialise in this subject. Michelle Carville is a social media expert and she's the author of Get Social. And Sarah Ozan is of counsel at CMS. So hi, both of you. Thanks for joining me today. Hello. Hello. Pleasure to be here. Okay, so starting off on a really positive footing, what are the really great things about using social media in the workplace? Michelle, can I ask you first? I think there are a number of ways that social is being used in a really positive way in the workforce. I would say that it is helping people to collaborate more, to cut through a lot of the time-wasting and formality that is sometimes attributed to email. And it just allows groups of people to converse quickly in a way that is more natural to potentially the, the way that they would like to communicate. I would I would agree. It's a good way of collaborating and communicating and sharing information. And it, it allows people to be a bit more fluid with their communications than they might feel otherwise in sort of formal letters and emails. Absolutely. And and we obviously we have had that great move from the email. Email was the beast of the nineties. And when you think about social tools a lot of the time people think, you know, Facebook, Twitter, WhatsApp, but we're also seeing more professional platforms coming into play now. So things like Slack and, and Yammer, would would you say you're seeing a lot of that these days in the workplace? I have to say, personally, not so much. Uh-huh. I know that there are organisations that use it, but we still come across questions mainly about the use of Facebook, LinkedIn, mm-hmm. WhatsApp. Those okay. seems to be the ones that come up again and again. So I know those other forms of communication are used, but they don't sort of raise the questions that we get. And in my experience, I think it's the down to the kind of organisation um, yeah. and the people within the organisation. So, for example, one organisation I work with very closely, they are probably more millennial driven. Therefore, they are all looking at, hey, how can we use Slack? How can we use Yammer? They've just moved to workplace. They use Google Hangouts and all of the Google apps to communicate and have switched their intranet completely to to the Google platform. So I think it depends on the organisation. That said, there are some more traditional organisations that are actually building their own proprietary Mm. kind of communication platforms that behave in the same way but are more controllable by Mm. by the organization and so these tools are amazing things like uh, messenger and whatsapp because they are allowed for really fast responsive kind of collaboration that is everything becomes much more conversational than it would be over say fax or email not sure if anyone still faxes these days actually but you know email you know it's 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 faster it's quick flowing it's good for ideas and um, idea flow 
But, you know, the problem with that is that as people become more social in the ways they interact at work, it, it can also mean that the ways people talk to each other become a lot less professional and people can slip up and start saying things that are offensive, probably not appropriate to the workplace or potentially discriminatory. We are now starting to see employment law cases coming up where people have shared unprofessional content on a, a social network, but something that's related to work. Um, do either of you have any good stories about kind of mad uh, stuff happening on social media? I don't have any really unusual stories, but it, it sort of comes down to usual, slightly strange employee behaviour or things that, right. you know, some people might not necessarily do. So, for example, sharing pornographic uh, content... Yes in a group and when asked about it they said that that would be a team building thing they thought that the other people would be interested uh-huh. okay, in, yeah. <laughs> in having that type of content one line. on their emails so that was one example obviously you've already mentioned inappropriate content and sexual mm. comments about other people perhaps it's sort of social yeah. communications that then slip into something you know they start talking about other people in the workplace and perhaps relationships they might like to have with them we've also had questions around instant messenger used for collusion between employees so in actual fact looking to see how they could take confidential information from their employer and use it afterwards and again it can be sometimes the nature of social media and instant messaging that they don't realise how recordable that is but that again is a sort of example of ways that we've seen people using it in the workplace. Mm. Michelle? There is a case with one of our clients where it was on the weekend and actually there was a conversation happening on Facebook and then somebody tagged the organisation and said, how do you feel about one of your one of your employees? Yeah. So they obviously searched, found that this person worked at this organisation. How do you feel about one of your employees saying all of this mm. and highlighted not a very tasteful conversation mm. to the organisation? So it was on their feed and of course they had to they had to deal with that. And And that was dealt with in the same way. You know, that comes down to the policies that they've got that have to be clear to their team to say, look, when you are, you know, part of this organisation, whether you are in the organisation, outside of the organisation, you need to be mindful. And if you're bringing us into disrespect, then then there are there are considerations, there are guidelines, there are sanctions Mm. um, and we will uphold those sanctions. And indeed they did. So it wasn't necessarily in the workplace, but it was outside of the workplace. And Mm. I think that is something that's that's really interesting, because um, importantly, like, Correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah. As far as the law is concerned, this doesn't have to happen on a workplace device for the employer to be liable. As lo- it doesn't even have to happen in working hours. It can happen outside working hours. As long as something happens that has an impact on a professional relationship in the workplace or it, it has an impact on the employer-employee relationship, then the organisation can still be liable for, th- for this content. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on the connection with the sure. organisation and obviously maybe what steps are taken to sort of rectify the situation mm-hmm. afterwards. But yes... Individuals should be aware that once they've walked out of the office door or they're doing it on their personal mobile, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's there aren't consequences. Right. And, and if you say something offensive, I would imagine it actually it broadly doesn't actually matter what channel that is on. If it, if it has those implications, I suppose the, the employer, depending on how it's kind of linked, they, they mm. can then get involved with that. Yes, and what quite what can happen is that somebody makes a message on a personal device and they send it to one friend or they do a post on Facebook which is to their friend group and what they don't realise necessarily is that that can be reposted or resent or it can be posted publicly and it has it then ends up in a much wider audience Mm. which if it's connected with your workplace or your employer 
can go to people that it was never intended for. Absolutely. Yeah. I would like to ask both of you, I'll, I'll start with you, Michelle, if I can. With all this in mind, what can employers do to um, uh, protect people against you know, slipping up in, in these instances? How do you protect against people using these platforms for less than professional means? I would say all the usual codes of practice, codes of conduct, guidelines, but have absolute clarity because I do not think that, you know, if you are putting out guidelines and it's a 72-page document that you expect employees to read, it's kind of like the terms and conditions, you know, do people really go through it in fine detail? No, they don't. So, you know, one of the things we did within an organisation I was working with was we actually had like little meet and greet sessions throughout lunch times learning about what is and what isn't permissible and make it as simple as possible and you know you'd like to think that people's best judgment and that people are sensible but there isn't clarity and there has to be more clarity I think and an education about what is and what isn't permissible because control is a kind of illusion you know individuals are individuals and rather than you know we're all tied to our phones and Mm. we don't necessarily think that what we're doing in our personal lives will necessarily carry through into into our commercial lives but of course it does so clarity I think clarity and education more than just giving people scraps of paper you know and reams of paper I think there really needs to be a responsibility of the employer to say this is what is agreeable this is what is not agreeable these are some case studies this is what is acceptable this is what isn't acceptable are you clear and keep going with that training so Mm. that they are clear I mean, I agree with everything that Michelle's just said. I think from for businesses, it's about having it is about having clear social media mm. policies and procedures that that you can. If you end up in tribunal, you, that's what you're going to be pointing to yeah. to say you had this in writing. It was clear to you what you should and shouldn't do. That should be backed up with information about what the consequences will be if you get it wrong. Also, there should be, as you said, training. So it's about behavioural change, culture within the business, making sure people understand what is and isn't acceptable other than just reading the policies that Mm -hmm. exist. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to instil that in people. So it's all about doing those things. Uh, Also, employers can make it very clear that the use of certain social media sites on their own equipment is not allowed. Yeah. So it's simply prohibited. Just don't do it on work phones. Um, and yeah. work phones, personal communications, not allowed on work phones. So again, you can set some clear parameters about what the do's and don'ts, which again is backed up then by more information in the policies and procedures, which is then backed up mm. by the training and the behavioural instilment and culture yeah. so that people are clear on what they're supposed to do and not do. Because with all this technology... It's the people using the technology right. that can Absolutely. create the problems. Absolutely. Like the technology doesn't do this by itself. And when no. I was writing about this a couple of months ago, something a lot of people said to me was just that, you know, the phones aren't doing this by themselves. This is just the evolution of the water cooler. Yeah. And it's people saying rude or offensive things that they might have said in the pub or around the water cooler. Now they're just doing it in a different field. With that in mind, I wonder how sustainable and kind of defensible is employment law kind of in this area is it going to need to evolve as tech evolves or do you think it's just the same policies about don't harass don't uh, breach the equalities act don't don't say rude offensive things in the workplace do you think that will just kind of stand 
and will be like applicable to this as we move forwards? I don't necessarily think you're going to see the development of particular employment laws to deal with mm-hmm. social media. I think, as you say, there is already the existing framework around the Equality Act, around the Employment Rights Act, and the fact that people have the ability to dismiss if behaviour is inappropriate. So I think there are already a number of things that manage this whole situation. What you do see is perhaps other areas of law that are going to have a bit more influence. So, for example, the changes around data protection law and the GDPR that came in in May, that adds an extra layer for employers to consider around, around use of personal data monitoring. There's been some recent work by the Article 29 Working Party who actually issued some new guidance last year to do with what employers should consider around monitoring employees in the workplace, specifically to do with the development of new technologies. So I think what you'll see is the law developing perhaps in other areas which are relevant to this, Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't necessarily expect to see specific employment law developments to do with social media. Michelle, one last question for you, which I will then ask you as well, Sarah. What do you think are the biggest challenges and opportunities that we will see kind of in in the social tech sphere in coming years? Mm. I think think the challenges are are kind of choosing the right platforms and um, keeping up with the technologies and balancing, allowing people to be human beings, you know, and give them their, empower them to use these technologies, but in a way that is purposeful for the organisation, purposeful for them, you know, purposeful generally, without the negativity aspect. And, And maybe, you know, these tools are, they're not new, but they're still relatively new communication platforms. Social media guidelines didn't exist 10, 15 years ago, you know, now they do. And so, you know, organisations and individuals are still getting used to the rules of play uh, to a degree. So I think that aspect, there's an opportunity there to to kind of humanise the experience a little bit more, give people more leeway, but obviously in a framework that is safe and um, purposeful for the organisation and the individuals. So that is a challenge. The opportunity, of course, is about really, again, almost empowering those individuals to get more involved, to collaborate, to allow organisations to be able to be more agile, you know, to to really just get the people that they need to get mobilised quickly, conversing without meeting after meeting and email chains and threads and just really take action, you know, and not just take action, but discuss and collaborate and uh, be social around those things. So I think there's lots of opportunity uh, and and I think we're only really just starting out with, with where we can go with it. Absolutely. Anything to add? Sarah? No, I agree with all of that. I I think from a business perspective, you've got to look at it from a sort of internal point of view and also an external point of view in that from your internal business, a lot of businesses get a lot of benefit out of the use of social media, both from their employee workforce perspective, but also they use social media in the way that they promote themselves and they encourage their employees to do that. And with that, it's a case of them carefully thinking about what is suitable and appropriate, as Michelle has said, for their organisation and what parameters they're going to set around that. And then I think it's also the external piece and the personal piece, because you can't stop people using their own mobile phones. It's about setting clear expectations and consequences if things go wrong and also letting them know what they should and shouldn't be doing with their personal devices. Wonderful. Michelle, Sarah, thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you.
Time now for our interview. And this month, Lauren met a man working on almost the literal front line of HR. I'm here today with Wing Commander Steve Parks. Steve has taken his HR career path through the public sector, commercial and customer service environments, with specialisms in organisational change, leadership and team building. Now he works delivering the HR function in one of the most important and exciting workforces in the UK, the Royal Air Force. Welcome to that HR podcast, Steve. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So we're going to start. How long have you worked for the RAF and what was it that drew you initially to this role? Now, this is going to be 42 years this year. So that's a lifetime in the military. Why was I attracted to it? I think uh, it goes back to my father was always keen in aeroplanes. So after college, joined the Royal Air Force, initially as an air traffic controller. And then took, some, took my pilot's license, didn't quite make the cut for pilot, joined the personnel support branch, the HR branch of the Royal Air Force, and never looked back. It's, um, it's challenging, it's diverse, it's professional, it's a real opportunity to do something different in a dynamic and challenging environment. And you say challenging, not many people would associate HR and RAF immediately. It's not the first role that you go to when you're thinking about HR or the RAF. What would you say are the specific challenges of HR function in the military? So, for example, going on tour is probably not something many (laughs) HR professionals do in their career. I think this is something I often get. You know, why do you have HR in the Royal Air Force? You know, it's uh, you're just moving things around in a desk. Far from it. Our role is not just working supporting people in the homeland it's also in operational environment we do looking after our people the human resources element of it we do infrastructure we do media communications public affairs we do welfare community support we do finance so we do a whole discipline of different areas of specialized specialist hr umbrella activities and i think this is what attracts people it's that diversity Mm. They're not going to go in today, I know for the next 2, 3, 5, 10, 20 years, they're going to do the same job. They may do 2, 3 years as a HR specialist. Mm. They could then transfer and be doing the infrastructure. One day they could be working on a main operating fighter base in the UK. And then the next day they could be out in Afghanistan. That's the excitement. You're going into an environment that you... Uh, and never know what's going to happen next. You're still providing that welfare support to individuals, which is is our role. We must provide the best possible support to our people. So we need to be professional, agile, flexible, flexible, mm. understanding, listening to our people. We find the people that join today are looking for to be pushed both physically and mentally, work hard in the workplace. But, of course, the military offers that opportunity to um, go out and do um, training activities to build up our leadership. We offer that little bit more. But we mustn't forget that our aim at the end of the day is a warfighter environment. That is the military role, is to protect the United Kingdom. So when the people join the military, that's what they must have at the forefront of their minds. Mm. But it's not just the military aspect now, it's the academic understanding behind it. And that's where we come into CIPD. Yeah, so wrapping that military element into the HR role specifically, what is HR's role in ensuring personnel are ready to be deployed if they're needed in a conflict situation? Because this is obviously a situation that's quite unique to your particular brand of HR. 
How integral is HR to that? Um, fundamental, absolutely, 100%. Our aim in military HR is to make sure that individual, be it the technician, the engineer, the administrator, the medic, whatever branch of trade they're in, the role of the military HR person is to make sure that individual is absolutely prepped in everything that he needs or she needs to be to go out in operations, fully prepared for whatever may throw, be thrown at them when they're in uh, an operational environment. But of course there's more to that. It's also looking after people that are left behind, the mm. partners, the welfare, the community support. Uh, and that's where, again, military HR is integral. We've talked a little bit about how people might not necessarily associate HR with the RAF and vice versa immediately. How is the RAF trying to build a sense of a HR specialism? How are you attracting people? How are you engaging people with this role? My job, our job in the military is to show people, in fact, that the military HR is an employment sphere that offers diversity, excitement, but is transferable into the civilian sector. Absolutely. And I think that's where the, the understanding comes, is that mm-hmm. transition. So working with organisations such as CIPD, working with universities and colleges where we can offer opportunities for our individuals when they join the Air Force. If they don't join with academics, we can provide them with it. And that, be it at degree level, MVQs, be it apprenticeships, we find those, we marry up the skills that people have learnt in the military, we then map those across to civilian training courses so we can capitalise on our training allow people to gain civilian qualifications using their military experience. And that's retention, that's recruitment positive and retention positive. Mm-hmm. And I think on your question, specific question there is how do we dovetail? It's getting the private sector to understand that we are a professional HR organisation mm-hmm. that have the same skills and experiences, plus I'd argue a lot more, that makes us very attractive for when so like we you're saying about the agility and the ability to adapt and that kind of situation. That's right, and yeah. the, 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 the leadership skills, because in the military, leadership is a key enabler. The motivation, the, the energy, the drive, it'd be wrong to say it's just the military sector because mm-hmm. any corporate organisation is going to want exactly the same qualities. I think we bring them out because we have to bring them out when we train our people for that wider role. The psychological contract is very different in the RAF Perhaps obviously you said there's a lot of links and a lot of it is is you know transferable to the to the private sector. But what keeps people engaged? I think it's offering them a very rewarding job. It's giving them the best technology and training that we could possibly do for them. It's listening to their ideas. I find when I go onto stations. I don't always want to listen to the senior leadership on that station. I'd rather go and talk to the young airman, airwoman who's working in the, in the uh, personnel headquarters. How would they do something different? Mm-hmm. What do they find frustrating? Let's face it, those today that are joining are bought, being brought up in the, the modern technological era. They might say, well, if you had an app that did this, that would save me time great that's exactly what I want to hear how can we develop an app using modern technology to reduce the workload that is called perhaps general HR workload yeah. and allow that spare capacity to be reinvested in where perhaps we don't have sufficient resources 
There'll always be a need to have the face-to-face contact, but technology will allow you with Skyping, with with remote working and IT that's available to have that flexibility. That's one aspect of it, working from home. But that allows us to keep the experience of our people, for example, uh, when uh, maternity leave. Yeah, obviously we've got such a statutory maternity leave. But then maybe people will not want to come back full time. So we are looking at policies and practices now where people will come back perhaps part time. Mm -hmm. Job sharing has been in for a while understanding where families are where both partners in the military how can we work that what family care can we give how can we change our engagement policy our employment policies can we bring people back that have gained experience in the civilian sector can we bring them back at a higher level because they've gained competences and experience that is valuable to the military this is a way i think of keeping those highly trained people that we've looked after since they joined and we've given them that training we don't want to lose them and of course we mentioned um, the whole force concept of full-time reservists um, contractors civil servants and regulars Mm. that is the future mix that's the future delivery of military air power is a mix of the whole force concept that makes us more efficient more adaptable more agile more cost effective and you obviously (laughs) invested in the idea of debunking the myth, if you will, of you know HR not being a integral part of RAF operations. You've made it very clear that it is. How is that changing perception feeding into the way that you recruit and the way that you try and attract talent? Yeah, very good point. We have to be very clever and we have to target our people. We have a very demanding potential candidate base out there. The way we use websites, Facebook... Twitter to articulate what we do, demonstrate that our role is not just on the homeland, it's not just in the war environment, it's also in where we need to go out where there's disasters all over the world. We will be there, there's an earthquake, a flood, there will always be a personal administrator, there will always be an HR individual there from the branch. We try to exploit the fitness of our people by offering every sport you could possibly think of. So we should. You know, it's not, it's fun, mm. but it's there for a reason. It's there to develop leadership. It's there to push people to the limits. And I guess, and, you know, you, it, it's showing people that while they might be, you know, for example, working on payroll, recruitment, all of these things that we in- immediately associate with HR, but actually in the military context, there's slightly more. It's exciting. They know there's a lot more to it. They, mm. Yes, there'll be the days where we all get, bored or it's mundane or it's the same thing <laughs> coming around again we're only human we're only fine. and, we, and we'd, we'd be lying if we didn't say that but you know at the end of the day you can apply to go on that training course you can apply to go on that adventure training area you've got a family around you now that's another point of recruitment in the military you are joining a family mm. you're going to have friends that will be there with you for life when I joined, it was a career for life. Now people don't want that. They join you for six or 12 years or so. And that's not a bad thing. I think it's good. But as we mentioned about flexible working, it doesn't mean to say we lose them anymore. When they do leave over that period, we might get them back in six years or two years or mm. whatever. So it's that overall flexibility that the military now offers that perhaps we didn't to the extent we do now. Uh, and I think the youngsters joining today, I would hope, would see that excitement. We need to sell it, though because there's corporate activities out there that are very attractive. We're competing in the workplace, 
uh, we're competing with the universities. But I think we've got a good story. Absolutely. We've got a fun story. Work hard and play hard has always been the, the motto. I think on that note, that's where we should leave it. Work hard, play hard. Steve, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. To end the show, we turn, as ever, to Tim's pointers with Tim Pointer. So please do welcome our agony uncle. He is the Obi-Wan Kenobi of personnel issues. It's the founder of Starboard, Tim Pointer. How are you doing, Tim? Oh, very well. I'm just putting my appropriate brown cloak on. Excellent. So we've actually got quite a dark listener query this month. It's a bit different from the ones that we've sold so far. So just to recap it, someone wrote to us and said, I work as part of a close-knit team in a large organisation, and for almost a year one of my colleagues has been talking about a thriller novel he has been writing in his spare time. After recently announcing he had completed it, he gave me a copy to read. It's about a man who stalks his female colleague, and the woman in question is quite clearly supposed to be me. What on earth do I do? Wow. Yeah, Tim. Huh. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is the most serious question we've ever we've ever been oh, asked. Far and away. Okay, it's de- um, deeply concerning. So the first thing I'd like to talk about is the Susie Lamplew Trust. Um, What's that? So the Susie Lamplew Trust runs the the National Stalking Helpline. For anyone that's, anyone that's affected by any issues that we're talking about uh, this month, if you just Google National Stalking Helpline, it will take you to uh, the Susie Lamplew Trust. If you'd like to contact them directly, you can also phone them on 0808 802 0300. That's 0808 802 0300. And the Susie Lamplew Trust exists to, or their mission is to reduce the risk of violence and aggression through campaigning, education and support. And they work towards safety. That is their, mm. that is their, num- that is their number one purpose. They want to create a society in which people are safer and feel safer from a violence and aggression. They do this through campaigning for change, educating on safety and supporting people to, st- to stay safe from violence and from aggression. That is a really fantastic organisation to reach out to. And I would also say that we organisations uh, listening who are thinking about who they can partner with in terms of some CSR work. And again, they're a fantastic organisation to, um, to work alongside. Secondarily, I would say that this person says they work for a large organisation. Your organisation has a duty of care towards you. Absolutely. And this is happening in the workplace. It's been discussed in the workplace. It sounds like these two people have met through the workplace and the book was given to her in the workplace. Therefore, all the accountability is with the organisation to make sure that our writer is safe. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I would also advise this is a conversation that needs to to happen in work. In a large organisations, will normally have an employee assistance programme. They'll have an HR team. They'll have a, a leadership hierarchy. It's about our writer thinking about who they first want to have this conversation with because their safety is the number one priority. Absolutely. I would say don't feel embarrassed. I think you need to escalate this almost almost straight away. Don't feel like, I mean, it's it's a weird, it's a weird situation. I'm not going to lie about that. But because it's peculiar, that doesn't mean you shouldn't share it with people. I think you, I would, I would fully recommend that you speak to your manager, speak to a person that you trust, first of all, and make sure that your organisation is aware of this because it's highly inappropriate highly inappropriate thing to be doing and your initial instinct might be to try and laugh it off in this instance i honestly wouldn't absolutely and i think i was reading an article that you wrote yes uh, <laughs> was to, uh, talking about research that had been carried out by the young women's trust young women's trust yeah you know saying that you know a third of young women do not know who to go to to report harassment at work yeah 
and you know so that we are being very clear within this podcast these are serious matters and the importance is to reach out to somebody both mm. inside the workplace and outside the workplace so that she has the support that she needs yeah absolutely so i think the best advice that we can give to you on this one is to tell a manager tell a trusted person and also go outside and don't let that issue be kind of swept under the carpet make sure you do keep pursuing it and see if you know what your organization can do to ensure that you are being kept safe and supported in your place of work because you should never have that safety undermined if you have a question for the next edition of tim's pointers head over to our website or email us in confidence at pmeditorial at haymarket.com and that's it from this edition of that hr podcast Thanks to Michelle Carville, Sarah Ozan, Steve Parks, and of course, Tim Pointer. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, and of course, on our website, peoplemanagement.co.uk. Go ahead and rate us. We would love to see your comments. My name is Emily Burt, and my co-presenter is Lauren Brown. The producers were Matt Hill and Chica Ayres at Rethink Audio.